0: from the Press Radio Bureau. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Welcome to the Frame Lab podcast with Gil Duran and Dr. George Lakoff. Hey, George. Hi, Gil. Well, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus and a lot has happened in the meantime, Um, most urgently. The midterm election just took place uh, this week and we got a lot of news out of that, George. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you and that our listeners are probably interested in is what are the parts of the result of this election that we can celebrate, and what are the lessons or the cautions we should pay attention to out of this cycle as we head toward 2020. First, let's start with what's the good news? What can we celebrate? The very first thing that occurred to me is that
1: Adam Schiff is going to be head of the Intelligence Committee in the House. And that means he's going to be able to subpoena all sorts of people connected to the Russia investigation to testify under oath that will happen january 4th that is very good news very interesting news and'll um, be uh, you know in the front pages um, you know for some time because Adam Schiff is a very thorough um, and smart guy uh, and it's amazing to see the chairmanship of the intelligence committee going to him
0: For the first time in two years, we have a real check on presidential power. Uh, Not only can we investigate, can Democrats investigate, but uh, they can keep Trump from doing all kinds of things that he may have been able to do with a Republican House of Representatives. And so I think this was a real nightmare scenario for the Republican Party, Because this is now, you know, while they had all the power, they could let Trump get away with whatever they wanted. But um, now that they've lost a big chunk of that power, uh, they're going to have to deal with democratic power. And um, it's better for the democracy, I think, to have this balance. But Trump has been busy claiming victory. You know, Mm -hmm. the first thing he did when this election happened was go out there and say that this was a great result and that he was happy with it, which obviously is completely untrue. You know, Trump wanted to see... The House and the the Senate go, go even redder, um, but you know you, you never want to lose a House um, of mm-hmm. you know you never want to lose a legislative body when you're the president. So, but what is Trump really saying when he's saying that he won? What he's saying is that
1: um, his personal power uh, in uh, elections was shown there, uh, as he said. Uh, the he gave a long list of people who didn't ask him to come and support them and who lost, uh, who didn't accept his quote embrace unquote. And then he said the people who did accept the embrace who he campaigned for won and he gave a list of those. So what he was saying was that he has the power to get Republican candidates elected And, of course, forgetting that there were very good reasons why those
0: Republicans didn't want him to come. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of Republicans who, some Republicans who he endorsed did not get reelected. So Mm -hmm. he's also, as usual, uh, not being truthful and lying about what the reality is. That's right.
1: You know, that's just, you know, not the case. But uh, that's what he was saying. So he was saying this is good for his influence, for his embrace Uh, you know, for his ability to uh, get Republicans elected.
0: That's one of the things that he was saying that this was a victory for. So I'd say maybe he is trying to make sure that Republicans don't turn on him. Not only don't turn on him, but do ask him to come and support them
1: and do ask him to give rallies with them and so on. Uh,
0: That's what that was about. At the same time, I think another thing he was saying, and this was kind of borne out in some of the news stories, was that although the Republicans had a bad night because the Democrats got the House back, if you look at the history, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. The Republicans kept the Senate, Mm -hmm. and they did win some key symbolic races like the Beto versus Cruz race in Texas. Devin Nunez kept his seat, although he had a great challenge from Andrew Jens. Um, some other House races that were really close with Democrats running um, competitively against Republicans uh, didn't turn out in favor of Democrats. So I think he was also saying, sort of like, "Haha, it wasn't as bad as other people have had it, so therefore I'm not as bad as you're saying. That's right. He's saying, look, we still have the Senate and you can do a lot with the Senate. I think another important thing that happened in this midterm was that we see people running and generating a lot of excitement, and they're not running as so-called moderates, they're running as progressives, people who speak directly to the values they represent. We saw that with uh, Beto O'Rourke, we saw that with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley. these were people who weren't taking the corporate PAC money who weren't towing some middle-of-the-road imaginary line that makes you electable. And some of them got elected against powerful forces, against the Democratic Party, in fact. Um, What do you think that the Democratic Party needs to learn from these kinds of candidates as it once again becomes one of the powers in Washington and probably starts listening to consultants and pollsters who tell them that the way to win is to be more Republican?
1: Well, uh, they've been hearing that for a long time. Move to the center means move to the right. And uh, that uh, didn't work for a lot of people. You know, you have a more progressive Democratic Party than you had before. Uh, A lot of those Democrats won and were part of that victory. And I think you can look forward to those Democrats, uh, you know, saying, hey, we need more progressives to be running. We need more progressives in the party. We need to take more progressive stance, stances and so on. So I think that will happen. Um, and uh, what I didn't see, uh, and what I would like to see, is this. Uh, the Democrats, even you know those who won, talked about issues. They talked about health care and things like that, those kinds of issues, uh, as opposed to values they didn't talk about the values that entail those issues. Uh, They may have those values, but the Democratic Party is still not talking values. And that's important. They need to start talking values as well as issues and to show why all their issues are not just random lists, but why they follow from those values. One of the problems that Hillary Clinton had was she never made clear what she was for. I mean, in terms of her values. I mean, she would give lists of policies, but she never said what she was about and what the Democratic Party was about. And that needs to be said now. And it can be said, actually, in very simple terms. I can give you two sentences that will say it it all. uh, That uh, uh, in a democracy, you need a government that is of, by, and for the people. And uh, that private life depends on public resources that because we care about other citizens, uh, it's important to provide public resources that they can use to um, form businesses. You can't run a business without roads and bridges and uh, airports and other public resources, um, and lots and lots of them. And you can't live a private life without public resources of many kinds. And this is something that the Democrats should be saying out loud because it's exactly what the Republicans don't believe. And it's true in just all kinds of cases, and can be shown in all cases. So it's a major point that Democrats need to talk about, the important importance of public resources in business and in private life, and uh, to having a government that's up by and for the people.
0: Now, we didn't get to talk about this because we were on our hiatus, but... Um... The Democrats did, interestingly enough, adopt the slogan of for the people. Uh, But that was it. They made a conscious choice, it seemed, from what I read, to not have a unifying narrative or frame for the midterm. Um, And at the same time, you have been saying for years now that of the people, by the people, and for the people is the American ideal. So it may be a coincidence. It may be a sort of a... Um, you know, throwing a little bone. But can you explain why just having a slogan with a bunch of policies is also not the right thing? Exactly, because it doesn't say what
1: that policy entails in terms of action. Uh, A a government that's of, by, and for the people means the following. It says that uh, ordinary people are in the government you people like you and me, not wealthy people, not, you know, influential people necessarily, but ordinary people can be governing. By the people means that the um, life experiences of the people governing you should be pretty much the same as your life experiences, That is they should know what it is to live a life like, like ordinary people. And for the people means that a government has a responsibility to take care of its population, not just the people who voted them in, not just the political party, but all the people, that this is a responsibility of the government, uh, and that that notion of care and requires empathy, that the government has to uh, have people who empathize, who care about other people, and government policy must reflect that care. That is a major thing that needs to be said. And it needs to be pointed out at every point where there is a policy proposal that that policy proposal follows from these principles. So
0: you almost have to say this policy is important because and then connect it to the moral basis and the belief system. Instead of just, you know, for instance, one of the, I think, slogans that uh, progressives and democrats often think is is a message is a moral message is medicare for all yeah which is a statement of a policy position rather than why is medicare for all important why is it moral and why is it the responsibility of a government that serves people that's exactly right i mean suppose you say medicare for
1: all and ask, answer your question Why is Medicare for all a responsibility of a government? And the reason is one, the government should be, have people in it running it, who empathize with ordinary people, who know their needs, who put themselves in their shoes. And that means they need to have medical care. Uh, And Medicare is the most accessible form of medical care. Uh, Medicare for all means automatically You have medical care. You know, once you turn 65 and you get Medicare, a lot changes in your life. A lot changes for the better. So that's a very important idea. Uh, Another one uh, is that when you say it's for all, what you're saying is that everyone equally is a citizen who the government is responsible for, even if they're wealthy, even if they could afford medical care and can't afford it, they're citizens, you know, and especially most people who are middle class, uh, and, you know, uh, below the poverty line and so on, often can't afford
0: medical procedures, especially when you see how expensive many medical procedures are. So it's about understanding also the effect that it has on people's lives. And I saw today there was a story, uh, I think Fox News had attacked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she cannot afford an apartment in Washington, D.C. until her congressional salary kicks in. Maybe they'll understand that a lot of people can't afford an apartment in a lot of places on the salary that they're making currently.
1: Well, one of the interesting things um, about the right wing is that they often take care of their own. Uh, they help people uh, go through law school for the Federalist Society. will help people who are going to join the Federalist Society go through law school. Uh, and um, you know, one of the major right-wing think tanks um, built uh, an apartment building in Washington for 100 interns who couldn't afford Washington prices. I mean, there is on the right uh, what I've called in-group nurturance, in-group care that is taking care of their own. And there's a long tradition of this.
0: So we've gone over some of what there is to celebrate, and we've sort of talked a little bit about what some of the warning signs are, but let's go a little deeper into that. One of the things we saw in this election, which many Twitter personalities and others had predicted as a blue tsunami, we didn't exactly see that. We did see uh, a wave of elections that returned the house to democratic hands but uh, there was not a it was not the case that the democrats won every single race because people are so tired of trump what we saw was that the republican base is still sticking with trump he has a his message has a tremendous power over them um so what is it that democrats need to do in the next 2 years to account for the amount of power that Trump has over the Republican base? Well,
1: first, they need to understand uh, what it means to be a conservative, what it means to be a Republican, and what worldview Trump has. And that is what I've called a strict father worldview. Uh, That worldview uh, has a moral hierarchy associated with it, a hierarchy of who's better than who, who is more worthy than who, uh, it's, um, and it has to do with who has won out over history. Uh, so you get things, you know, who are the winners versus the losers? Uh, so you have God above man, religion has won out, uh, the rich above the poor, so the assumption is they earned it, uh, and so on. You have uh, other things like that, uh, adults above children, uh, you have um, whites above non-whites, uh, men above women, straights above gays, and so on, in this hierarchy. Uh, it, and, and also, um, uh, Americans above non-Americans. So you can see the kind of jingoism that follows from this, the sexism that follows from this, the racism that follows from this, all in that same moral hierarchy. But if you go down that moral hierarchy and you make a list, which I've done, uh, in an essay I've done um, that is called uh, The American Idea Idea and Its Antithesis. If you make that list, you can see that Republican legislation fits that list. All Republican legislation fits that list. And that's a very sad thing. It's a sad thing that those views of winners being better than losers uh, is part of Republican, uh, not just ideology, but Republican legislation.
0: Another thing that we're going to have to account for is the power of things like gerrymandering, voter suppression, the constant lies that the president is telling and that the media is repeating ad nauseum until it becomes confusing as to whether something is real or not, because you've heard it repeated so many times. Um, So it's not really going to be a fair fight in 2020 we can in- expect everything we've seen so far to really ramp up an increase in its intensity right now we're watching as the white house put out a doctored video to make it look like the cnn reporter jim acosta had uh, assaulted uh, a white house staffer when in reality they had had some outside group speed up the video to make it look like something completely different happened And we are now seeing if you look out there on the the technology websites etc the advent of the fake video where you will see something with your own eyes that will actually be fake computer generated or edited and so it's not going to be a change in trump's behavior i think we're only going to see an intensification of what he's been doing so far and it is frustrating Because we have some of our pundits out there, people who write for papers or on TV, always wondering why the Trump voters are sticking with Trump, always asking the same question. Today, there was an op-ed in The Guardian. It was, uh, why are white women voting Republican? It's because they're racist and because they're uh, having to uh, vote for Republican in order to try to avoid the sexism of Republican men, but they still don't. Um, people aren't seeing the full breadth of the hierarchy that's at play here and not understanding the metaphor that's at play. And, and I think that's really frustrating. We, we say it a lot. We put it out, out there a lot. But it's frustrating because it's hard to see how you really solve a problem if you don't understand the problem. Well, as I've been
1: saying and writing in various books for a long time, uh, starting with moral politics in 1996, uh, in the political mind since then and so on, um, there is in the country about 37% plus or minus two, and has been since Goldwater lost with 37% in 1964. Um, there's been that many people who have strict, strict father morality at home. And that strict father morality at home translates into politics. And it's not just men, there are women who, uh, you know, Trump said it very interestingly uh, in his press conference. He said, uh, women want to be protected. They need, you know, uh, strong protection and so on. That's why we need ICE at the border to protect them from the hordes coming over trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, rape them and um, uh, murder them and so on. I mean, this is something that uh, Trump is very much aware of. There is a view among many women, that they need the protection of someone uh, who, is, who has strict father values. It's not just men. There's a lot of women who have the same values as their, as their
0: husbands. Uh, this week I had a relative of mine, a cousin, who I don't know very well, post after the election. I proudly voted red, which was news to me. I'd never asked about her politics before, but it was striking because this is someone who Grew up on welfare, has a parent who's an undocumented immigrant, and who has a lot of relatives who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and even transgender. And it was interesting to me to see that she has adopted Trump as her, uh, her her ideological belief. But there are two things that I think stood out to me that helped me understand it a bit better. One. Uh, she's married to a guy who's in the military, who's obviously a very strict father-oriented um, and very clearly pro-Trump. Um, two, she grew up in an impoverished family but went to college and uh, became a professional and probably views herself as someone who did it all herself. Although I can assure you that they were public grants and other opportunities afforded to her that come from our um, american system of providing something there for people to have opportunity and get ahead so that was really amazing to see because you know i think if most people know me don't think of me as someone who's related to any trump supporters i think there are a few out there but um that ideology can blind people to their own experience even you know this is not somebody who you would think of as being a trump republican um you know, someone who saw their own father deported more than once and having to find his way back into the country. But um, taking your advice, I did not say the snarky things that I wanted to say. Instead, I just kind of put her on mute so that I won't see her post anymore because we can stay connected, but we don't need to, I don't need to hear her political views. But uh, I don't think people understand the way that strict father ideology works. And I fear that it's to our detriment If we don't, uh, if if Democrats don't dig a little more deeply and figure out um, not for the purposes of pandering to it, but to to understand what it is you're dealing with, how it works and how it affects people who are swing voters and have some of that strict father ideology in them, but also have progressive ideas and an openness to progressive values which, unfortunately, they never hear from anybody in the Democratic Party. Well, um,
1: you raise a lot of issues there. How could the Democratic Party and the media, either neutral media or media on the left, uh, come to understand all this? And there's a lot standing in the way. Uh, the biggest thing that's standing in the way is what, is what I've called enlightenment reason. It's a view of reason from Descartes in 1650. And basically, it says that reason is just logic, that um, uh, our view of our reason can fit the world as it is. So you're worried about facts. So if you have logic and facts, then you have the consequences. And that's all you need. So all you need to do is tell people the facts and they will reason to the right conclusion. That's why you have the Democrats you know, constantly saying, here's this fact, here's that fact, here's another fact, etc., without explaining the values behind those facts, why those facts are important, uh, what they entail, and so on. Now, in order to do this, you have to understand the failures of Enlightenment reason. Uh, one of the major parts of reason is framing, as we keep talking about. Uh, framing is not in Enlightenment reason. It has to do with how you understand the situations that you're in and alternative ways of understanding them. That is, there are alternative frames for understanding situations. The other thing that is missing is metaphorical thought. And this is something that I've been writing about since 1980. Uh, The book with Mark Johnson, Metaphors We Live By, is now in the top 20 uh, of uh, all social science books in all fields ever in terms of uh, the um, uh, number of, of citations. So we, you know the idea uh, that put forth first the idea that we think metaphorically, and that's largely unconscious. we don't usually know it. But we think metaphorically. In, in the simplest of cases, uh, when you say turn down the TV, it doesn't mean throw it on the floor you know, more is up, less is down, uh, you know, talking about less volume. And um, that's just a simple case. Uh, you know, stocks went down. You know, they didn't throw the stock, stock pamphlets on the floor. Uh, you know, more is up, less is down. That's a simple metaphor, but there are thousands of them that are unconscious that we use every day. And strict father morality in politics is based on a metaphor That the nation is a family.
0: And we see that a lot. And people have been saying in in terms of the way Trump has been treating the press, he's acting like an abusive father who expects his every command to be obeyed. And while that might be a turnoff to a lot of us, Mm -hmm. there are certain people with whom that behavior resonates and is, in fact, the way it is supposed to work. 37%, plus or minus two, which is his base. Someone asked on Facebook, actually, they asked, do you think that that number is increasing? Um, It may be. Uh, I
1: don't know. Uh, It may sometimes go, plus or minus, the plus two would go to 39%, could go to 40, and so on. So it could very well be increasing. It's not increasing that much. It's not, you know, uh, going to 50% or, you know, probably not even about 45%, but
0: it could be increasing into the low 40s. From where we stand now in November 2018, do you think it's possible for Trump and the Republicans to win in 2020?
1: Yes, I think it's very possible. That is, if he starts out with 39 percent of the vote, he only needs uh, another 12 percent. You know, and um, and that isn't necessarily 12 percent voting for him, but just against the other guys. Mm-hmm. So a lot of his victory over Hillary Clinton came from people uh, who had negative views of Hillary and also from Russian trolls who were, you know, took over Facebook posts and sent out huge numbers uh, of negative uh, posts about uh, about Hillary uh, as if they were coming from ordinary citizens.
0: I think we also need to keep in mind that while we need to celebrate Democrats taking back the House and winning some races— We shouldn't be overconfident about 2020. A lot can happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the hacking, the gerrymandering, whatever it is we haven't imagined yet. And, you know, people thought Clinton would be a one-term president after healthcare failed and the Republicans took the House. But then there was the Oklahoma City bombing, and he embarked on a strategy of triangulation to move to the right and still Republican positions, and he ended up being reelected. You know, he was impeached, not convicted, but impeached, and his popularity soared. So that was one example we've seen in the past where uh, someone who looks like a lackluster one-term president actually ends up getting the full eight years because of things we can't anticipate. The same thing with George Bush. He was on his way to a very uh, mediocre presidency after a very controversial election that left a lot of Americans feeling raw. 9-11 happens and we embark on global war and he gets the full eight years and we see all kinds of terrible things happen. So I know friends of mine, progressives, who think I'm insane to say it, but we cannot assume that this will be automatically over in 2020. I um, agree. I don't think it can, we can assume that at all. We have to prepare for
1: 2020, and we have to have the right candidate. It's not clear who it is. Very
0: unclear. Very, very unclear. I'm going to switch gears for a minute, because things are happening at such a rapid clip these days that it's almost sad to say that you know, two weeks ago, There was a massacre in a synagogue, and a man in Florida, obviously inspired by Donald Trump, sent bombs to many of the president's enemies. He's now in custody. But the president's hate speech, what role does that play in the increasingly terrifying atmosphere, I think, that many people are feeling in this country? What is hate speech? And... Why is hate speech not free speech?
1: Well, uh, hate speech has consequences, physical action consequences. Uh, Hate speech uh, says that there are some people in certain subpopulations who are evil, who are bad people, and who therefore will do bad things, will do evil things. And there are all sorts of folks out there who will believe that when they hear it, and will want to uh, stop it, and therefore will uh, go out against the people who are hated. Uh, So, for example, uh, you had uh, the massacre in the synagogue, and that was based on, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, attacks on George Soros, for example, or attacks on... Jews as globalists trying to take over the world and things of that sort that you got in uh, the um, right-wing social media. There was lots of it there. And there was somebody with guns who was listening to it and thought that what he needed to do to save the world was to eradicate Jews. He went out and shot people, killed them. I mean, this is what hate speech does. Hate speech... Uh, activates the idea in people's brains that there are other people, uh, other groups of people, not just individuals, other groups of people who are evil. And if they want to be good, they have to act against those people in order to uh, show what good people they are. That's what hate speech is about. It's about you know, putting forth and provoking action against innocent individuals. It's a disaster. It's a horrible thing.
0: Well, that's an important point you make, because one of the ways people push back is by saying, well, who gets to define hate speech? What you're saying is hate speech. I feel traumatized. But there actually have been some definitions of hate speech that are pretty straightforward and reasonable. And in other countries that are enlightened democracies, there are definitions for hate speech.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is something that can be done. Uh, we can talk about what it mute hate speech is. I've done that. But it has to do with the provocation of action. That is, action against an innocent population.
0: And so it's it's also about a group of people, right? Yes. Whether it's Jewish people or African-American people or gay people or transgender people, it's fomenting the hatred and action against them because of their identity. That's exactly right, because of... Who they are,
1: in some group, and uh, that is, you know, disastrous, ghastly, uh, and of course the claims are usually false. Yeah, so you know another thing. But even but boy- even if they were true, even if uh, you know you had speech that said there were really criminal, awful people who are out there who are worth hating. And I can think of some. You know, it doesn't mean you should go out and shoot them. It doesn't mean you should go out and attack them. But that's what hate speech suggests. It suggests if you're a good person, you should be willing to go and attack the evil people.
0: You told me a story recently that was very interesting because I had told you that on on Twitter a guy named John Stokes had said, he had read your essay and said, well, I don't think George Lakoff has ever been punched in the face or he would know the difference between hate speech and a fist. Um, You made a point to say he wasn't suggesting that anybody actually punch you, but uh, I asked you, George, have you ever been punched in the face? And you said you hadn't, but you had been punched in the back. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what it was based on?
1: Well, sure. Uh, When I was growing up, Um, I was Jewish, I'm Jewish, um, and from the time I was in grade school, uh, my route from school to home intersected with uh, the route from a Catholic school to my neighborhood. And a number of the kids in the Catholic school started throwing rocks at me because I was Jewish, or threatened to beat me up because I was Jewish. I uh, the intersection point of my route and theirs happened to be the public library, which I knew very well. And I could, you know, if necessary, escape in the door, the, the back basement door of the public library and knew where to go to get up to the, to, uh, the front desk and to get safe. But the point was that they called me Christ, a Christ killer. And they got that from people in their school they didn't think of it themselves and you know that they were were taught to hate
0: so the idea the hateful idea became hateful words which became violent action in this case
1: right and in one case there's somebody there who uh, followed me home followed me into my backyard and tried to beat me up And I just grabbed him, put him in a bear hug, and we punched each other in the back for a while until my mother came out and broke it up. But, you know, uh, yeah, um, uh, I experienced this when I was a young kid, like eight years old.
0: Yeah, another point I think that uh, this guy misses is that, and some people on Twitter actually pointed out, if you think about the Holocaust and how that began— and how Hitler spent years building this and and growing upon this hatred of Jews that could be exploited in German society. You don't have to look very far to find an example of the power of hate speech being a hell of a lot more powerful than one fist, um, do you? Exactly. I mean, you can get six million examples. Did the Holocaust affect your family and how...
1: Yes, unfortunately, um, <clears throat> the um, portion of my family that came from Ukraine, uh, a number not some of them survived, and I've met them, but a number did not. A number died. Uh, there, you know, and actually, a, a lot of the reason that um, my family came to America was. Um, Grums in Europe. They came to escape that, escape the uh, Russian army and so on, and uh, the Cossacks. uh, That's why I'm here. I'm here because
0: my grandparents came here to escape that. Well, we're glad you are here, George. And that's it for this week.